0: Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We'd love for you to join us on Sundays at
1: 9.30 or 11 right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're calling this year the year of the Bible as we read and study through the Bible cover to cover. On August 25th, we'll kick off the New Testament along with home-based small groups who will study the weekly reading together. If you'd like more information about any of this, visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's
0: hop into this week's teaching. Acts 19, 23 through 31. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know my friends that we receive a good income from this business and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristocarsus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater lord we come before you today just grateful for this beautiful day and grateful for how creation cries out your name we're grateful for this community we come before you with eager hearts and minds to hear what you have to teach us today Lord, we always ask your blessing upon John, our pastor. We're so grateful for him and pray that you will speak through him today. Um, let us always be mindful of how we can love you and serve you wholeheartedly in all things. In the precious name of Jesus.
1: Yeah, thanks, Sue. Y'all can be seated. One of my favorite, uh, this is not in my notes, which means I'm probably going to get in trouble, but uh, one of my favorite descriptions of Cornerstone ever came from Scott the Year. Is Scott here? So Scott, one of the first times he came to Cornerstone, he descri- described it as comfortably clumsy, <laughs> which I really, really liked. And uh, it's important to like enjoy those funny moments because church can be so serious, and I tend toward being a really serious person, so fun moments are fun. So I'm going to tell you something really embarrassing that happened last Sunday. You just can't tell Emily, my wife, that I told you, okay? <laughs> so have you ever seen the movie Naked Gun, anybody? So some of you will seen Naked Gun. Well, there's that scene where Leslie Nielsen is speaking in a public forum wearing a wireless microphone and then goes to the restroom and the mic is still on. Well, that and vomiting in front of all of you are my two greatest fears in the world. So on Sundays, I do a lot of hydrating because I talk a lot and I just can't drink enough water to keep up with it. So last Sunday, because I hydrate a million times, I also go to the bathroom about 70 times every Sunday morning. So last Sunday morning, we're in the middle of music at the 11 o'clock service. And I know I'm about to be occupied for 30 minutes or so. So I go to the restroom and I, I had just led the creed. So the old mic was still clicked on. So. I went back to the bathroom, and I went, number one, <laughs> and in the, of, <laughs> in the middle of going, I thought, oh, I, I turned it off, right? I tur- oh, my gosh, I did it. <laughs> so I came in, and Emily was standing right there, and I said, Emily, I just left the microphone on while I went pee, and she said, that's what that noise was? <laughs> She said, I thought Brian was doing like a rain stick sound on the keyboard or something. It really happened. Ah. And so right after that, I said to her, should I tell everybody? And she says, no, but I told all of you. She's not at this service, so it's okay. Oh, great. Oh, man. Well, uh, grab a Bible and turn to that page. We're gonna kind of walk through Acts 19. Ben said before service, we were laughing as we were praying together before service, and Ben said something like, you know, there had to have been tons of conversations left out of the Gospels of Jesus and the disciples joking around. Dallas Willard said something like, God is the most joyful, like, being in all of the universe. So it's good for us to laugh. So last week, we were in Acts 11. And uh, we heard the story about how Barnabas, who's the son of encouragement, uh, goes and gets Saul, who becomes known to us as Paul, and brings him to the church at Antioch. Paul was a new believer and uh, wanted him to be incubated in a culture of encouragement. And now Paul, who had met Jesus on the road to Damascus and had this amazing conversion going from a guy who tried to kill followers of Jesus to being like like this missionary apostle, is going all over the world, strengthening the churches and starting churches all throughout the Roman Empire. And here in in, uh, Acts chapter 19, Paul has just left the city of Corinth. We have the first and second letters to the Corinthians. Paul was at the church in Corinth, and now he's going to spend some time with the church in Ephesus. And when you hear church, don't think about this. Don't think about a couple hundred people in a building on a Sunday morning gathering and listening to one person. The church in Ephesus that we know of at the time was was 12 people. It was a really small number of people. And Paul has gone there to encourage them and to strengthen them, to bolster them and, and lift them up. Uh, Ephesus was this town in uh, the western side of modern-day Turkey, and it was a really important city in the Roman Empire. Uh, at the time of Paul, it probably had like 250,000 people living in it, which makes it one of the great cities, the third or fourth largest in the Roman Empire, a really big city. It was a hub for banking and commerce, and it was the home uh, to the, the goddess, like the temple to the goddess Artemis. Uh, that temple was one of the seven wonders of the world, and so uh, I was—I've I've gone to D.C. a couple times in the last few years, and you know, just walking around, like looking at the Capitol building or the Supreme Court building, you're kind of in awe of of the, the scale of these structures. Well, imagine this being 2,000 years ago and they've built these behemoth pillars, these amazing structures. Paul is walking around in this city looking for 12 Christians in a city of 250,000 or so people home to this temple to the goddess Artemis. And everything about this situation just screams, Paul, you are an outsider, like Christians you are misfits. You do not belong in this setting and yet Paul is walking in to strengthen this really teeny tiny misfit minority church looking for 12 people. God had done pretty great things with a group of 12 people before, and so Paul walked in with faith about what God could do with those 12. So as he meets the uh, the church in Ephesus at the beginning of Acts chapter 19, He finds them and he asks them, like, hey, when you were baptized, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they have a pretty interesting response. He said, he asked them, did you receive the Spirit? And they said, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, which sounds like tons of Christians that I know. That was supposed to get a laugh. (laughs) I I grew up in in an Assembly of God church, which I'm so grateful for, and we knew the Holy Spirit. In college, I I hopped around a lot. I was in Presbyterian and Reformed churches and listened to people like Alistair Begg and R.C. Sproul on the radio, people who knew the glory and the sovereignty of God. They knew the Father. I did Bible studies with Baptist churches, and they were all about Jesus. But the little sects should not pick their favorite member of of, of the Godhead. We're meant to be Trinitarian as followers of Jesus. We come to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. And if one member of the team is going to get left off, it's almost always the Holy Spirit because we just don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. Paul says, did you receive the Spirit when you were baptized? They say, we didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. And so what do they do? On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul placed his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. He baptizes them and lays hands on them, and then the Holy Spirit comes, and the proof that the Holy Spirit has come is that they begin to speak in other languages, just like happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and then they begin to prophesy. Now, some people are really uncomfortable with like, what we might call like the charismatic gifts of the Spirit, a word of knowledge, word of wisdom, tongues, healing, all of those things. Some people even grow up in churches where they say, that stuff didn't happen anymore, I think it's a really dangerous thing to say what God can and cannot do, and I'm open to whatever gift that God has for us. So I don't speak in tongues. If God gave me the gift of speaking in tongues and put the offer on the table, I'd take it in a heartbeat. Paul said we should eagerly desire these gifts, especially prophecy, uh, because these things build up the church. They strengthen and they edify. There have been a handful of moments in my life where I've felt like uh, God gave a prophetic word to me through another person. Or times where I have felt like, in ways that I can't describe, God said words to me. You're like, well, how do you know? Well, it's kind of like this. Think about who was your best friend in the sixth grade. Okay, do you have their face and their name in your mind? How do you know they were your best friend? I don't know, I just know they were my best friend. And similarly, like sometimes like God speaks and we should desire for God to speak. Jesus said, it's better that I go away so that the Holy Spirit would come. Paul lays his hands on the disciples. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak in other languages and they begin to prophesy. Begin to prophesy, the Spirit shows up. Uh, Now you may be a longtime believer and maybe you grew up in a denomination or a, a church that was like not friendly to the Holy Spirit. I would encourage you to open up the doors of your heart and actively pray, like come Holy Spirit. Do stuff in my life. Uh, I don't think the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life has to be emotionally abusive or coercive like many of us who grew up in charismatic churches have experienced. Uh, the Spirit, uh, the Spirit comes, can come gently, can come powerfully, but I think we have a responsibility to just be open, to say, yes, I'll take whatever you've got for me. This is what happened in the church in Ephesus. So they're baptized, the Holy Spirit fills them. What does Paul do next in the city of Ephesus? Well, despite the fact that they are a a very teensy minority in the city, uh, Paul has a strategy. First, he goes to uh, the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues, most of whom did not profess that Jesus was Lord and and the resurrected Son of God. And he began to argue persuasively, the text tells us in Acts 19, for the kingdom of God. He's preaching the same stuff that Jesus preached. He argues persuasively uh, for the kingdom of God. He does this for a couple of months until he begins to get grief, and then they change venues. He took the disciples with them and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And for two years, this went on. For two years, he's getting up in the morning and and giving these discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, as a result of which, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. When Paul entered the city of Ephesus, they grew to 13. After three months in the synagogue of arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, a couple of years of showing up in the lecture hall of Tyrannus and having daily discussions, as a result of him showing up, doing the work, everyone who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul is laboring to get the message out in the most grassroots of ways. This is long before the printing press. This is long before any kind of digital communication. Paul is continuing to wake up in the morning, head to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and have these daily discussions with whoever shows up. He's got a kingdom work ethic. But it wasn't just manpower. It wasn't just Paul's force of will that the word advanced in the city of Ephesus in the province of Asia. Uh, there There was divine power, demonstrations of power that came. The text tells us in verses 11 and 12 uh, and beyond, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. And then jumping to verse 19, it says, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they had calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, which is a drachma is like one day's wages, 50,000 days wages were burned. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. If you tracked it all with the year of the Bible, we go through the four gospels, and now we're, we're making our way through the acts of the apostles. We see that in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, acts of power accompanied the preaching of the gospel, that there were miracles, Crazy stuff happened. Dead people came out of tombs. People with leprosy were unclean lepers, and then in a moment, they were clean. Jesus touched them. And they became well. Jairus' daughter was dead, and then she wasn't dead because Jesus came and laid his hands on her. Acts of power accompanied uh, the preaching of the gospel. And it seemed, uh, we see this even in the ministry of Jesus, to cease and to stagnate when the miracles or the signs were treated as a sideshow or an end in themselves, the miracles were not primarily about relieving the suffering of the people uh, who had some kind of ailment. Uh, Jairus' daughter ultimately died. Lazarus ultimately died. The people who touched the handkerchief that Paul had had ultimately died. The purpose of the miracles was not primarily the relief of those people in suffering so much as it was the confirmation of what those preachers were preaching. These acts of power, miracles and casting out demons, accompanied and confirmed the preaching of the gospel. And you tend to think like, why don't miracles like that happen in our day? You happen to wonder, are we not at the bleeding edge of the advance of the message of the gospel? That's a good question. And it leads us to the teaching text where we see this bit about Demetrius and everything that went on. I found this really, really fascinating, this silversmith named Demetrius. Let's read again what happened with him. Paul's message is disrupting public life. The silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together and said, you know that we receive a good income from this business. And you see in here, and this guy Paul convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province. He said gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who's worshipped everywhere will be robbed of her divine majesty. Paul's preaching about the kingdom of God and the responsiveness of the people to this preaching had a real-world effect, and it's really hacking people off. And you saw in yellow why it might have been so disruptive. It was beginning to affect their income. They were losing money over this. It was affecting their industry. It was challenging their national and their cultural identity, Uh, and, uh, like, directly, it was taking on their idolatry. Like, you want to really hack people off, take on, like, challenge somebody's income. You want to really get people to dislike your preaching, undercut their entire industry, or, or, like, ebb away at their national or their cultural identity, or just name as false gods those things that they worship. You're going to get real unpopular real quickly. This is precisely what happened with Paul. And it demonstrates something really interesting that the advance of the gospel in a city or in a country might actually be terrible for the economy. The advance of the gospel may actually be terrible for the economy. Now, imagine this. Imagine if the kingdom of God were advancing so forcefully in a city that those check cashing places that charge like 300% and and 400% interest and, and tend to exploit the poor... And strip clubs that objectify and monetize the sexuality of mostly women and validate the barbarian lust of mostly men, and the psychic shops that prey on people's vulnerability and flirt or openly consult with dark forces. Imagine if all of the industries that exploit and dehumanize and dishonor and perpetuate injustice had to close up shop because there was no more demand because hearts of people were returning to God. The advance of the gospel in the community may actually be terrible for the economy. Now, most people are actually okay with you believing whatever you want as long as it doesn't have any bearing on the real world. (laughs) Like, yeah, sure, believe whatever you want. Believe that, like, the moon is made of pizza and, like, we're all going to get our own planet someday. Believe whatever you want as long as it doesn't actually make a difference in the real world. And in that sense, connoting that the real world is the world of prophets and industry and nations and politics. But but Orthodox Christianity maintains that true spirituality cannot be maintained to private religious beliefs that hold no bearing on the world as we know it. God is not a respecter of the secular sacred divide. Christians understand that the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers, Psalm 24, 1 and 2. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of all that is, seen and unseen, according to the Nicene Creed. We believe that everything that we see and all of the mysteries that we can now fathom, that God is the author and the architect behind the entire thing. And so when we are spiritual creatures and we have beliefs as followers of Jesus, we don't think these are meant to be or are in actuality, these esoteric, ethereal things that have no bearing on the real world. We believe that God is the one who created all things, the real world. If there's a real world, it's God's. He made it. He loves it. He will not abandon it forever and intends to renew it. And the idols of industry and nationalism and violence and injustice are just setting up tents on land that is replete and resplendent with the glory of God. They are temporary, they are targeted, and they will not last into the age to come. Now, I want you to take note that as Paul's coming into the city of Ephesus, he's not taking his, his like, like playing from the playbook of the moral majority or the religious right in the 90s. He's not calling his 12, you know, the 12 followers of Jesus in the city of Artemis to begin like picketing outside the temple as if that's going to be effectual. He's not calling for Caesar to legislate a ban on the practice of sorcery throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, Paul's stated goal was not even to disrupt the economy or the, the, the idol industry in town. Paul came to Ephesus to pray and to labor for the kingdom of God to take root in that city, that the kingdom would come in Ephesus as it is in heaven. And what happened as a result of his preaching, of his his daily discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, was a consequence of his his work. Uh, Paul and the Christians were not chiefly against the culture of Ephesus. They were for the kingdom in Ephesus far too often we are known for what we are against. Being empowered by the Holy Spirit, Paul uh, shared the message of the kingdom, the message of a God who loved the world and intended to redeem the world through his son, Jesus. He shared this with the patience of a farmer and with the discipline of an athlete and the loyalty of a soldier. And as a result, the kingdom of God spread and took root in this community. You think about the posture of Paul and the Ephesians, they were not retreating, they were not afraid, they were not apologetic for their beliefs that stood in disparity with the community around them. Yeah, most of the time when I think about my posture as a follower of Jesus toward the world, then I'm defensive. I'm way too defensive. I'm too apologetic. I'm too fearful. I'm too self-serving. I'm too quiet. I'm too, my, my faith is too private and it's far, far, far too safe. I find that I play defense by habit, but that was the opposite posture of Paul and the church in Ephesus. They were playing offense. If you want to really get in trouble, if you want to really make yourself uncomfortable, there's this book called Resident Aliens by Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon. I've got a handful of extra copies. If you're a troublemaker and you want to read it, I'll, I'll, like, I'll give it to you. But it's dangerous. And Willimon and Hauerwas in this book talk about a posture of offense. They say our biblical story demands an offensive rather than defensive posture of the church. The world and all its resources, anguish, gifts, and groaning is God's world. And God demands what God has created. Jesus Christ is the supreme act of divine intrusion into the world's settled arrangements. And in the Christ, God refuses to stay in his place. The message that sustains the church is not for itself, but for the whole world. The church having significance only as God's means for saving the whole world. The church is God's means for a major offensive against the world, for the world. Against the world. If it's against the world, it's for the world. This band, Gunger has a song. um, Oh, what is the name of it? Us for Them. He said, you know, if we're going to divide the world into us and them, then it's us for them. The church, somebody, somebody really smart said, is the only human institution that exists for the sake of its non-members. If we're against the world, it's for the flourishing of the world. It had a posture of offense. They weren't scared. They weren't afraid. I remember one time I had this amazing opportunity to uh, go on a trip with leaders that I respected. This was a handful of years ago. And uh, we were in the Dominican Republic, and we're driving around vans with like, I'm driving with like people who are writing books and people who are re- leading large churches, and I'm like the youngest kid there, confident I do not belong with this group of people. And I remember hearing them talk about these, what, what I perceived as kingdom offensives that they were doing in their city, these strategies of, of, of prayer and work that they were rallying people around to make a real difference in the world for the kingdom of God. And I remembered, you know, I'm in a mainline denominational church that has been dying almost since its inception in 1968. And most of the majority of our churches, this is true of many mainline churches, are seeing fewer and fewer people in in the pews, and there's a prevailing sense that we're losing. But here are these people who are dreaming about an offensive strategy. Man, I want to be a part of something like that. You know, it's cool, just a tidbit, it was November of, of 2014. It's November of 2014. We're sitting around on the patio the last night there in the Dominican Republic, and I speak up to these guys and I say, I don't know what to do with this. I'm the junior most associated, a large United Methodist church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I feel like God's calling me to plant a church. I have no idea what to do with it. They spoke into my life. Talk about a culture of encouragement, saying, like, we think God's doing something there too. You should follow that. It was an offensive strategy not fearful, not reluctant, not always hiding in the shadows, not apologetic, I'm sorry, this is what I believe, but confident. This is God's world. He made it. He's behind it. He will be the source of its redemption. We should stand proud and be the kingdom of God. Not be apologetic, not be perpetually defensive because we have a reactive culture and everyone's offended by everything, but to calmly and non-anxiously be who we are, children of God. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. They had a posture of offense that was winsome and yet unapologetic, a posture of offense. So I've been kicking around the story of Paul and the Ephesians this week in Acts chapter 19, uh, I found for me three key insights, three cues from them about how we can model this behavior in our context in the city of Tulsa. The first is to maintain a positive presence. Now, I shared this earlier. We are far too often defined by the things that we are against. A positive presence means we're for something. I'm not against you. I'm for the kingdom of God. I'm for the fruits of the Spirit being the norm in our world, being a positive presence. I think this means two things. It certainly means being for something and not just against something. But I also think that in a cynical and negative world, where public conversation is acidic and corrosive and and volatile and mean-spirited, that we can be the people who are positive and calm and non-anxious. Think about your social media usage. Think about the conversations you have with coworkers or with family. Man, the Democrats are where the Republicans are. We're so mean we to take an audit of the things that you choose to post to Facebook, or you may know in your brain the things that you filter out but want to post on Facebook. Man, can anyone tell what we're for? Or do they just know that we hate liberals? Do they just know that we hate conservatives? they just know that we hate X and Y and Z, the things that are happening in our country and our world? Here's a really comical one. Think about your neighborhood Facebook page if you have one. <laughs> you know the neighbors who are against speeding and you know the neighbors who are against you know all of those things and what it would it look like what would it look like for the followers of jesus to be like not just like silver lining optimistic but to maintain a truly positive presence to not always lead with a culture of critique but a culture of creation by by bringing something positive to the table the only way you change culture is to create culture, and so we bring a positive presence in our workplace, in our family, in our, in the, our public commentary and things like social media. We want to, to be a positive presence. There's great Methodist missionary named E. Stanley Jones. Uh, oh, I don't think I put this on here. Yes, I did. E. Stanley Jones was a missionary in India. He was friends with Gandhi and led these great public faith conversations Jones said, both physically and spiritually, we are positive beings and we cannot live on a negation. We cannot live by a no. We must live by a yes. And that yes must be God or it will let us down. We must live by a yes. What is your yes? What yes are you bringing to the table? It is so easy to be critical. It is so easy to be cynical. There are things worthy of critique. There are times when we need to stand against, but it must not be our default posture as Christians. The cross is primarily not God's no to the world, but God's yes to the world, his no to sin. If he was against the world, he was against sin for the sake of the world. Christians should be a positive presence, not only standing for, but in our being and in our affect, we bring life. They argued persuasively for the kingdom of God, not against the temple of Artemis. They they had a positive presence. I think the next thing I see in the church at Ephesus was a patient persistence. We saw it in the text how every day for, what was it, two years or three years, Paul goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus to hold daily discussions. I wonder how many days Paul didn't feel like things went very well. I wonder how many days, like he's in the Bible for crying out loud, so it had to have been a successful ministry, right? But there, no, I'm confident there were days where Paul got up in the morning and put on his sandals and thought, here we go again. I wonder if there were days where nobody else showed up. I wonder if there were days where Paul just like sat there in the lecture hall thinking like, all right, God, help, I'm here, what do you want me to do? There's patient persistence. He just showed up and kept doing the work. Uh, tons, of, tons of folks in our church are in the financial services industry, and maybe you've even been in a world where you're in like uh, 100% commission or a percentage of your income is commission. And the folks will tell you, look, if you just, just make a certain number of calls in a given day or in a given week, you're going to make it. Is it going to be really hard? Oh, yeah. Are you going to get told no? Almost exclusively. But you're going to make it. Make the calls. Do the work. Like get out on the street and talk to people. You're going to be Okay. There's patient persistence. For Paul, he knew that going getting up in the morning and going to the lecture hall of tearness and just trusting in the slow work of God, knowing that most days are not breakthrough days, most days are days of sowing. God is the one who causes the seed to grow. There was patient persistence. My, my evangelism muscles are so flimsy. Like my courage in standing in front of you is so great like right now, but when it comes to actually having a conversation with the people who live across the street from me or to the side of me, man, I, I'm such a wimp. And so, so I think, I say, as your pastor, like my own evangelism muscles are atrophied and underused. Think about how is God inviting us to practice this, this patient perseverance and sharing the gospel with the people around us. Some of you in this room are so ahead of me and so ahead of us in the way that you winsomely just like invite relationship with people who don't know Jesus. Some of us are like, like, you could think, I haven't invited anyone to church since uh, the summer of 1982. <laughs> muscles are atrophied. Uh, because we live in a world where we expect things to happen quickly, we have no appreciation for patient perseverance. Like you, you're trying to get your know- to know your neighbor. Not only do they not want to come to church with you, they don't even really want to talk to you. It's okay, like, hey, you're, you're playing a long game. Patient perseverance. God's patient with us in the same way. Man, how many times? I'm doing some anthropomorphism here, but how many times does God wake up in the morning and say, Man, I wonder if He's gonna listen to me today? How many times does God have does God have to exercise patience toward you? God is patient with us, He wants to give all of us a chance. Where's God inviting you to practice patient perseverance with a family member who is difficult to love? How's God inviting you to practice patient perseverance with someone that you work with who doesn't know Jesus and just like by continuing to be that positive presence in their life, by continuing to be a person who when they're going through some kind of crisis shows up with love in the name of Jesus. I shared last week, and I don't want to belabor it, but we, we, when we lost our child a couple of weeks ago, uh, Emily was 15 weeks pregnant. You showed up in our lives. In the, your coworkers and your neighbors. It, it's our kindness. It's gonna win them over. It's not arguing them into like believing in the merits of Christianity over another religion or no religion. It's our, it's our kindness. This is what Paul says in Romans. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. There have been numerous stories in our church of people showing up with meals when there was a new baby born, and it was through showing up with meals that people became part of the church and grew in their relationship with Jesus. A positive presence exercised with patient perseverance. Where's God encouraging you today to persevere in a relationship with someone in your world who doesn't know Jesus? It's okay if they say no a million times. A million and one, they might say yes, and God might work powerfully. The church in Ephesus practiced a patient perseverance. And then undoubtedly, the church in Ephesus and certainly the ministry of Paul and unmistakably the church, the early church, walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul didn't think of himself as a really great preacher. In fact, I came across this great bit in 1 Peter 4 or 5 where Peter says, Paul says some stuff that's really confusing and difficult to understand. And that made me feel great because I find Paul difficult and difficult to understand. They walked in the power of the Holy Spirit and there was a kind of authority in the way that they carried themselves. There was authority certainly in the casting out of demons and the the miracles that they saw that confirmed the message. I want to experience that kind of authority in the church today. In in a non-coercive way, in a non-manipulative way, in a non-getting-red-in-the-face kind of way, but in a gentle and a calm and non-anxious way, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit of God, and we see cool stuff happen because we expect Him to. I heard somebody really smart say a couple of weeks ago that from the very beginning, the church has prayed this really simple three-word prayer, and the prayer is just come Holy Spirit. And that prayer does not assume that the Spirit is not already present, as if in saying these three words, he's like, oh, good, I can come in. That's not what's going on. When we pray, come Holy Spirit, we're not, we're not assuming that the Spirit is not there. We're asking for the presence of the Holy Spirit to be made manifest in our midst, to speak, to direct, to guide, to comfort, to convict, to perform miracles in the name of Jesus that the message might go forward. You might be a person in this room who, uh, like, grew up in a church uh, that didn't really talk about the Holy Spirit, or you grew up in a church that abused the topic of the Holy Spirit, and in both cases, you're closed off. Maybe you didn't grow up around religion at all, and the whole thing just sounds a little bit freaky, and you're so freaked out, like, you stay within a five-mile radius of, like, Rhema Bible College, and you stay away from 81st and Lewis altogether, The Holy Spirit is supposed to play an active role in the life of the believer because Jesus said it was better that he go away so we experience the Spirit. And I would just encourage all of us, like you are not going to get by on good morality as a follower of Jesus. We're certainly not going to be consequential in our life together as a local church and advancing the gospel in our city. Certainly in any of the ways that bring this kind of meaningful renewal like we're talking about, closing strip clubs and the, the check cashing kind of places, that's not going to happen apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we can welcome it and say yes to it. God respects our intentions. And so one encouragement I want to give to you personally, but I wanted to give it to us corporately as well is that we would get in the habit of inviting the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church. I'm not a good enough preacher. We are not good enough planners. None, none of us are powerful enough or influential enough to, to make it really even like a drop of a difference in, in, for the kingdom of God in this world. But if the Holy Spirit of God is at work, something can change. There were 12 or 13 people who, full of the Holy Spirit and committed to doing the work, showed up for a couple of years in Ephesus. And by the end of two or three years, every Jew and Gentile who lived in the province of Asia had heard the word of the Lord and had an opportunity. Some of you have heard me tell the story of the revival in the Hebrides, the Scottish revival that happened in the 1940s, 1950s, in these backwood islands in Scotland, And Duncan Campbell, who was a part of this revival, though he didn't start it, the Holy Spirit started it. He said, it's my own deep conviction that the average man is not going to be impressed by our publicity, our posters, or our programs. Man, think about, he was writing this in the 40s and 50s. Think about the advertising culture of today. Think about what a deluge of information comes at us from churches and from everything else. We detach because we're so overwhelmed. He says, people are not going to be impressed by our posters and our programs, our Instagram ads or whatever, but let there be a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit and at once men and women are arrested. That's what I want to pray for as a church. Not in a red in the face, try to hype up everyone's emotions kind of way, but in in a posture of true openness and a willingness to have a true posture of offense, joining God in the advance of the kingdom in our city, like actually inviting the Spirit to come and do stuff. I want that. I hunger for that, for our church. I hope that you are open to that too. we've been singing the last couple of weeks, my heart is an open space, an open space. I hope that for you, and I hope that increasing measure for me, that we are people who are genuinely open to let God come and shape us and challenge us and use us for His purposes where we're willing to do stuff that kind of freaks us out from time to time because we feel those little, little bitty nudges of the Holy Spirit thinking, is this you? I'm going to try just in case. We do have this posture of openness. The gospel advanced forcefully by Paul and among the 12 disciples in Ephesus because they had this positive presence. They were for the kingdom of God in their city. They had this patient perseverance where every day they they were going to show up and do the work but they also walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. And remember the prayer of Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 3. He says, God, we've heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds, all that stuff, the stories from of old, but would you repeat them in our day? And in our time, would you make them known? That's our prayer, that God would do something. We're, we're, we're a, ultimately uh, like just a teensy, teensy, teensy little local church. Um, but ask that God would take us, would bless us, would multiply us and even break us so that we would be something worth sharing in the world and for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I just want to pray very simply that you'd come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. If that's your prayer, would you just open your hands and say, Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. If that's your prayer, say it out loud. Just come, Holy Spirit. Now, whatever you want to do in us, God knows I don't have the foresight or the vision or the insight to figure out what our church most needs, but you do because this is your church. So we just pray that you come, Holy Spirit, that you convict us of our sin, that you'd remind us and remind our souls of the merits of Jesus' death and resurrection for us, that we are a new creation, declared righteous and that you'd fill us with the Holy Spirit, that we could walk in power and be these kind of peculiar people who invite questions, the answer for which is the gospel. Pray that you'd help us to be tender and to be open, and even as we gather around the table today, Lord Jesus, I pray that it would be a means for us of our transformation. As you come, Holy Spirit, that you make this bread and this juice something so much more, a means by which we experience the presence of the living Christ, and may we be like him in this world.